The views and opinions expressed by contributors on the Spoon River Gothic podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the position of the host. Material heard on the Spoon River Gothic podcast is intended for adult listeners. This podcast deals with mature topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. Rusty? Yes, it is. Hi, Hi. Rusty. This is Anne Marie. How are you today? Good, good. Um, I'm just going to... I got you on speakerphone. Is that okay? That's fine. Yeah, that's fine. Do you mind if I record this? Oh, no. Yeah, I thought that's what you did, or I'm not sure how you did it, but I figured it was recorded somehow. So, Rusty, thank you so much for um, talking uh, to me today. Um, August had me uh, reach out to you. I think you know who August is. He's the executive producer of the book and podcast. Yep, yep. I, well, I, I know who he is, and I, but I don't know him really well. But, I mean, I know who he is, and I know he does, you know, this podcast and thing. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you live in Canton still? Yes. Oh. Yes, I do. Yeah. Oh, okay. Still live live in the same place uh build a house oh what here well it's been about 22 23 years ago and still here oh wow so you were um a cop yes um well i was uh you know born and raised here graduated from canton high school Mm -hmm. uh went in the air force i was air force security police and then uh um when I was getting out, wanting, I decided I was going to get out of the military, so I tested for uh, a couple of police departments. I actually, I planned on, I was stationed in Texas, liked it, but I planned on moving back to Texas. But then my mom had some bad health, so I took the job in Canton and moved back here to help out the family with my mom. So. Oh. My dad was a cop in Cleveland, Ohio. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's a life. Ugh. Uh, I bet you he had some stories there then. Yeah, 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 he did. Here I am, I'm talking to you, and, um, I mean, I don't know, you can tell me whatever you want to tell me about, um, the Donald Bull case, uh, the police department, living in Canton, I am open to anything that you have to share with me. (laughs) Well, cool, um, I don't, I mean, uh, like with the Donald Bull case, I I had only been on the police department for about three years back then. I believe, if I remember right, it was like January or February of of nineteen ninety three. I uh, I had uh, I'd about to say I was working patrol then at the time. So I mean I didn't have a lot of experience with civilian police. Like I said, you know, I'd only been there three years. So, I mean, I had been through the police academy and all the, you know, the on the job training and everything. But I mean, as like investigating the, the homicide or anything like that, I had nothing to do with that part of the case. Um, I know uh, I was working that morning and I, to be honest with you, um, I don't remember if I was the one dispatched to uh, South First Avenue to the house for the well-being check, and I was working with uh, Sergeant Marty Brown, and uh, I'm trying to think who, there was another officer working, and we had a lieutenant who was the shift supervisor, but I don't remember if it was Marty Brown that was dispatched or I was, but usually how... Working on the police department, if you weren't busy, you know, on a call or following up on something, if somebody got dispatched to a call, then you just kind of headed that way in case they needed something, Um, you know, or just, you know, if you're bored, kind of like everybody else, just see what's going on. But the sad thing is, is when you work day shift, a lot of times early in the morning, uh, you know, elderly people will pass away in the middle of the night and then... Yeah, in the morning when family or friends try to contact them, they can't get a hold of them. So they'll call the police department to go do a well-being check. And, you know, sometimes they just fell down or there's something that happened normal that where they're not hurt or injured or passed away. But there's so quite a few times where you get there and the person had passed away, mm-hmm. you know, and then we would have to, the police department would investigate the death and the coroner would be involved in everything. So... This morning, I I do remember it was cold out. It's kind of weird how certain things stick out in your mind. Yeah. But uh, um, honestly, I can tell you this was like the first homicide I'd ever had been called to. I mean, when I was security police in the military, I I went on you know uh, calls where people had died and things like that, but all of them had been determined you know natural causes or suicide. But at the time when we got dispatched, all we just knew is a well-being check. So I remember uh, I was coming down south first. Um, I could see ahead of me, south of me, uh, Marty Brown had pulled up and was already getting out of the car. And then the next thing, he, I could see him real quickly jump back in the car. And he called uh, dispatch to tell him that... Uh, 
you know, the, at the res- residence where we were doing the well-being check that the, it was on fire and they needed the fire department to respond. Well, by then I pulled up and got out of the car and you could see the, the entrance to uh, the downstairs ground level apartment. I mean, there was flames and smoke coming out of the door and there was a gentleman there and I, I don't remember his name, but if I remember correct, and I'm, I'll apologize if I get the information wrong because this has been many, many years ago, but the way, if I remember, uh, he was explaining to us that um, the victim, Donna, had worked at the bank with him and she hadn't came into work and they tried calling and she didn't answer her phone. So he came to check on her and he said that her vehicle was still parked in the back of the residence, which would be the east side. And he thought that her, and I remember him saying she had a child. So immediately I remember, you know, Marty Brown and myself, we were, but we knew there's no way we could get inside there with the flames. Well, then we made sure the apartment above had been evacuated, which they had already gotten out. And then when the fire department was pulling up, uh, to set up their equipment because most people don't realize like our our fire department in Canton uh, they have a, a great group of men and women that have worked for them and currently work for them but uh, they have you know they can handle rescue calls and small fires they have enough full-time firemen on duty but when they have a big structure fire large fire they have enough people to get the equipment there and then off-duty firemen and then volunteer firemen from the area come in and work as a team to get the fire put out well our fire department they they are very aggressive if they believe someone's inside the residence a victim or anything mm-hmm. and over over the years i mean i've seen them you know over the years numerous fires where they thought people were in there or there was people in there and the first on-duty firemen that had arrived would just grab their gear their safety equipment and boom go in go into the fire well that morning they ran a fire line or a water hose um the first couple of guys had their safe equipment on and i mean they just ran right into the the door with the fire coming out and one and one of the guys was spraying them down well then uh we by this point in time me and marty had set up our cars to block traffic and tried to set up a perimeter to you know to keep any gawkers back and i remember that gentleman who had came there to the residence to check on her he was telling us that when he got there, he was knocking on the door and there's like some glad, clear glass window panes mm-hmm. and there by the door. And he was saying that he could see into the apartment and he didn't see anybody, couldn't see anything. He said that, you know, he didn't see no smoke, no flames, no nothing, but he could clearly see in there. But he said as he's knocking, he didn't see anyone. Um, well, of course, this was back during the time, you know, the cell phones, we had the technology, but they were like bag phones and expensive, so they weren't common like they are now. Mm-hmm. But he he used a phone, uh, you know, like a landline telephone line to call the police department for a well-being check from somewhere right there. Mm-hmm. And I remember explaining that to us. 
but he said that then um, after he called for the well-being check he came back down and he said then at that point in time when he looked in through the, the glass on the doors he could then see like smoke and he could see like you know the fire and everything inside the apartment mm-hmm. and the door he broke or a window he broke but some i remember him breaking something and yelling and you know see if anybody was inside to, to help you know try to get him out um and then he said that's when we pulled up or when we were pulling up while he was trying to do that but um <clears throat> that was my part of it then uh i remember the firemen they were spraying water through the door a couple of the firemen ran in trying to see if they could save anybody uh one of the other firemen said that uh that there was like a bedroom on the back side of the downstairs apartment um he had a ladder and his equipment and gear and he said hey he goes rusty he goes i need you to go be my like safety line and which i didn't know at that time what that meant but i went with him and he put like a ladder there by the back window so he could climb up and he said basically he goes i need you to stand here or on the ladder by the window i'm going to go in and you know try to look for victims to get them out and if i find them i'm going to need help getting them out and he goes i need you also when i yell for you you to yell so i can you know with, with the smoke filling in i'm not going to be able to see and i know where the window is for me to get back to it so i just kind of stood on the ladder and he climbed in and i could hear him rummaging around and moving stuff but it was just black smoke pouring out and every minute or two he was in there maybe about 10 minutes maybe a little bit longer and he would yell every once in a while for me and i'd yell back so he could orient where the window was and then he came back to the window and i remember you know because black smoke was coming out i couldn't see in and then all of a sudden his helmet and face and mask was right there and it startled me and then he climbed out and took his, his air mask off and said yeah he could there were, he thought he was in a bedroom from the way everything felt but he couldn't find you know any any bodies or anybody well by that time a lot more fire personnel were on scene and the fire had moved up through the walls and up into the attic and the apartment upstairs and i remember one of the uh the firefighter that was on scene commander uh told us they said hey um this is a suspicious fire and um that you know this wasn't this doesn't come across as something you know like uh electrical or anything you know like a short or something that might cause a fire they believe the way where the fire looked like it started at that it was suspicious um so we notified our detectives you know back at the police department that this fire was suspicious they told us too that um they'd found two victims inside and at that point in time we kind of assumed it was donna and her daughter um but they were still fighting the fire. The fire department came up and said, hey, um, the fire's up in the walls and in the attic. We might lose the building. And I don't remember if they said they thought it was gonna collapse or they were implying it was gonna collapse. But um, they said that, hey, if uh, we need to get 
photographs of the scene um we better do it now because they said if it collapses that might ruin anything um so i remember uh i believe it was detective marty Bowden was there with the had arrived with the camera and we ended up like a volunteer fireman like i he gave me his helmet and his fire jacket and then another one gave marty his helmet and fire jacket you know the big bulky fire coat and i remember because uh i was wearing my police hat and i went and threw it in the car and i put on a stocking cap because it was cold and then i put on the helmet and the coat and then i remember the firemen were trying to fight fire upstairs and then there were some firemen there inside like spraying the fire down keeping it knocked down. Detective Boat and myself, we went in and to get, he was taking photographs, which then, you know, we used film, you know, actual film, not digital. We didn't have digital then. And I remember first walking in, I had my flashlight because it was kind of smoky, but I mean, it wasn't full of smoke at that point in time, but it was smoky and ash and everything was all over and it was dark. And I remember turning on my flashlight and seeing that it looked like a couch or like a fold-out bed kind of thing mm -hmm. and it see the donna there and then i thought well why is you know why is that doll laying there i was like why is there a doll and i was thinking oh you know there's a they said she had a daughter so that's probably one of her daughter's toys well then when uh, Detective Bowden started taking pictures with the flash. And then in the flash, I could see better. Then I realized, oh, that's not a doll. That's the girl. That's their daughter. And I remember we took uh, the firemen were like, okay, you know, if we tell you guys run, you know, head for the door and get out because we don't know if we're going to be able to save the structure. But I remember Marty Bowden. Uh, he took a bunch of pictures and everything from all different angles and stuff. And we, you know, from a distance, I mean, maybe about six feet from this, from every, where the victims were. And then he took a few around the surrounding area. And then, you know, we had to exit the building. And after we exited out, I remember, you know, I gave the helmet and the coat back to the volunteer firefighter and we were thanking him. And then, uh, I remember Detective Bowden was uh, talking to a couple of the firemen, you know, uh, the on-scene fire commander, I should say, about, you know, what, you know, what's making you think this is suspicious, what's going on. So, I mean, from the get-go, we knew it wasn't, you know, uh, we didn't know it was a homicide, but we knew also it wasn't, you know, the firemen were giving us information that didn't imply like, oh, you know, they had a gas leak and then this fire just started, mm -hmm. you know, something along that. I don't remember. I remember getting his name at the time, yeah. you know, after the fire department arrived and everything. And everything was settling down before the detective got there for the report. I remember getting like his name, date of birth and address and everything. I just, the thing that sticks out in my mind was that uh, the victim, she worked at the same bank he worked at. Right. And that's the main thing that stuck out in my mind that sticks out in my mind right now um but i remember the detective was talking to him and then 
uh, I kind of I walked around the perimeter to check because by then they had enough volunteer firefighters and uh, all the volunteers that for ESDA and things like that were there set had set up you know the traffic for traffic control and crowd control and everything. So we me as a you know just a road cop just a you know beat officer I wasn't needed anymore and. You know, dispatch still gets calls from other people that I have, you know, we have to go handle. So I was walking back to my police car, you know, to leave. And I remember our lieutenant pulled up and was kind of like, hey, what's going on? And I said, well, I go, you know, this lady didn't show up to work. A co-worker came to check on her and we got here for a well-being check. Well, ends up the, the house is on fire now and there's the victim and her daughters and their deceased and I go and they're still fighting the fire and he said oh okay and I go we you know and I was explaining where you know the ropes was blocked off and the perimeter and everything to keep people away and he said okay and then I remember he <laughs> reprimanded me because my uniform was dirty and I wasn't wearing my hat what on, are you effing yeah. kidding me I'm sorry <laughs> No, and I remember that sticks out. I mean, it's weird how things you remember things over the years, but I just remember looking at him and like, oh, okay, and you know, I'll do better, sir. And oh my gosh! I, yeah, and then I remember he left, and then I returned to my car and I cleared from the call. And uh, after I cleared from the call, I don't really remember much else that day. Um, then I remember, uh, you know, like the detectives, uh, it's, I, I know it's a small police department, but it's not like, you know, it's not like, oh, I just walk in the detective's office and say, Hey, tell me, you know, about this homicide you're investigating. Give me the details. It's not like that. I mean, the detectives kind of keep things close to themselves when they're investigating crime. I mean, if it's something like a, a burglary or, uh, you know, some other kind of misdemeanor crime or some kind of felony, like you're the officer that took the initial call or, or you know, did some follow-up on it, and you go in and talk to the detective and you say, hey, you know, I interviewed these couple of people. I sent you copies of reports. What do you think? And they'll tell you, well, you know, here, I think, you know, we don't have enough yet for a warrant. You know, they'll talk to you about things like that. But on a homicide, they, they don't just talk about it. It's kind of, they keep it to themselves while they're investigating sure. it. But uh, I know... The fire department over the, I don't remember the time frame, but over the next few days or weeks, I remember we found out that the fire department, you know, their in, uh, analysis testing had determined that there's an accelerant used. And I don't remember if it was gasoline, kerosene or what. I just remember they said that there had been an accelerant uh, dumped on the bodies and to the, in the area where the bodies, you know, were found. And that's where the fire had started um i remember uh dave airs was assigned he was a detect sergeant of detectives and he was assigned as the lead investigator for it um i do i remember mike elam was the chief of police i remember him you know 
talking to Dave and son, and Marty Bowden and telling them, you know, hey, you know, whatever resources you need or personnel you need to investigate this, you tell me and I'll make it happen. I'll get it for you. So, I mean, it was like, I mean, once the ball got, once we realized, okay, this is a homicide, it, you know, it was everything. They were doing everything they could to investigate this. So I know it was it was taking time for you know the autopsy and then you know also the the chemical analysis from the accelerants to identify that and to get all those documents. But I remember the detectives had already started interviewing multiple people, um, you know, friends or associates of hers. Or I, if I remember right. I can't remember if she was divorced from her husband or if they were separated, but I do remember like them interviewing, you know, her husband or ex-husband, if that was the case. And I remember that that all started like within days, uh, you know, of their, uh, of their deaths. Um, but I, to me, what really sticks out in my mind, it was, I don't remember the date, but it was sometime that spring, because this was in January when they were murdered, and it was sometime that spring, maybe like March, April time frame. I just remember by then I was um, working nights. I was on night shift and I wasn't on days no longer. But it, I mean, like that, it's always stuck out in my mind. One, I mean, it's bad enough when an adult gets, you know, murdered, but when a little, you know, a little child, you know, is murdered that way, it always just sticks in your mind. And, you know, over the years, I remember uh, thinking back, I remember like Dave Ayers and Marty Bowden in the detective's office, they had a, uh, like a little picture. I don't know, they got from one of the family members of Donna and Justine, you know, that they had there on the bulletin board. And, I remember this was at the old station down on Spruce Street, and I remember there in the detective's office on that bulletin board up in the corner. I mean, that picture was there during the investigation, and it was up there, you know, for several years afterwards, too. That's a lot. That's a lot of details, Rusty. That's really good. Oh, really? Yeah, and and a lot, I mean, obviously, we've uh, been reading the court documents and all that, and, you know, everything you said lines up um, with what we've been reading um, as far as, but the scene, I mean, that must have been horrible, and then your lieutenant shows up, and instead of like, are you okay after seeing what you saw... Um, my dad was one of the uh, first people to start a um, employee's assistance program, and it was in Cleveland, and it was for the police department. Because, oh, wow. Yeah, it was, I mean, it's a very, you're called on to do things like what you did. And as you're walking me through it, I'm thinking about the trauma that you must have experienced. And then, you know, to have your superior be like, your your suit's dirty. It's like, 
No. That must be. Yeah, I. It, it was a. You know, I guess, what do they call it? A different breed of policemen back then. Yeah, I just. I, I, it's weird that after all these years, that sticks out in my head because I remember it, you know, being cold and then, you know, with the firefighters spraying the water, the mist coming off and, you know, throwing my hat in the car and putting on the stocking cap. And then I put on that helmet, you know, to help Marty Bowden and just assist him because he, he was the detective. I was basically just the guy holding the flashlight and helping carry equipment. And I, I just, you know, then to be reprimanded, I just remember looking at him like, oh, okay, sir. Yep, I'll do better next time. Mm-hmm. You know, and it just all these years it just stuck in one of those things that sticks in your mind. Yeah. 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 Well, I appreciate the work that you did all those years because I know that it's not easy. And even today it's harder because, um, you know, police officers are not uh, the heroes that they once were, even though, you know, you showed up, you did what you were told to do. You risked your life. You saw horrible things. Yeah. Um, I appreciate that. Thank you for your service is what I'm trying to say. Um, oh, well, thank you. No, thank you. Yeah. yeah. I know I, I can definitely say I probably wasn't the best police officer, but I always tried my best. I mean, I always tried to treat, you know, I always tried to treat people the way I'd want to be treated, mm-hmm. you know, if, if, you know, I was a civilian, you know, dealing with a police officer. I'm sure there's times I failed at that, but I did always try. Yeah. Donna appeared, um, she was on her back, it appeared, and her legs were, like, the ends of her legs, you know, were, like, hanging over the edge, mm-hmm. edge of it. Yeah. And, and, uh, uh, and I remember, like, that, her, her daughter being there in the bed with her, and when I first turned on my flashlight, I was kind of shining around. Uh, you know, just the way my mind registered at the time, I thought it was a doll. Mm. And it wasn't until, you know, uh, Marty Bowden started taking pictures then in the flash where it was lighting everything up. And then I was thinking, oh, no, that's, you know, that's the, the little girl, you know, yeah. that, you know, the realization dawning on me. Oh, at that I point. can't even imagine. remember the the room was burned pretty bad i mean it was burned pretty bad and i remember the victim's remains were i don't know how what's a i don't know a proper term would be i guess like i'm roasted was that a proper term that sounds kind of don't it no it's a visually i understand yeah yeah okay that kind yeah so i mean I mean, you could tell they were humans and, you know, human. It wasn't like just skeletons. It wasn't like that. No, you could tell, you know, these are bodies here. How long, do you know how long the fire had been going by time uh, first responders got there? um, When we pulled up, um, the fire couldn't have been going very long because from the time uh, that gentleman that was there from the bank... He said he could see in through the glass by the doors and could see no smoke, no flames, nothing. 
and he could see into the apartment, but he couldn't see nobody moving around, no movement or nothing. And he went upstairs or to a neighbor's, used the phone, and then when he came back down, he looked in and he said he could see smoke. And I, I don't really, he said he could see smoke and like that there was fire in there. Mm-hmm. Well, by the time we pulled up, the fire was, I mean, it, it couldn't have been going by the time the fire department got there because the fire department was what there Spruce and First, and this was on North First and Spruce, and this was on South First and Railroad. I mean, it couldn't have been more than five, six minutes before the fire department got there. So, I mean, a guesstimation, maybe 10, 12 minutes mm. that the fire was going before the... And like I said, the fire department, those men and women from back then all the way even now, if they, once they know somebody's in there, even though they don't, they just have a limited crew full time to get the equipment there, they're very aggressive. I mean, they... They throw their safety gear on, their air masks, and they start spraying water. And then the guys run in through the water and into the flames, go straight in there, the men and women do, to try to save people. And actually, I've even seen them do it a couple of times for pets that were in the oh. in risk. Oh, yeah. So, but yeah, over the years, I've seen them, sad to say, I've seen them do that a few times, several times, actually, were, you know, put themselves at risk. Spoon River Gothic is a production of Lone Bird Media in association with CZ Studio. The show is produced by August Olson, editing, directing, and producing by Corey Zimmerman. Audio mastering and engineering by E. Mastered. Research is done by Anne-Marie Cannon, Chelsea Mesa, and me, Jinra Illustrissimo. Spoon River Gothic is written and hosted by Corey Zimmerman. You can follow the show at czstudio.works and read the blog at spoonrivergothic.com. Show some love by leaving us a rating or review on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for the next episode as we dive deeper into the Donald Bull case. Thank you for listening. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. <laughs>